From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all and, for the time being, will change the sound of our program just a bit. On today's program, we'll bring you some of the highlights from the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts and the Mayo News Network coverage of the pandemic. You're invited to follow along during the week by downloading Mayo Clinic Q&A from your favorite podcast provider. You'll also find more COVID-19 coverage at newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Joining us by phone for another COVID-19 pandemic update is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease and Vaccine Expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, good to talk to you again. Thank you. Good to talk with you. And hopefully those, this won't last too long, but we don't know how long, do we? No, we don't. And, uh, you know, I, as we've talked a bit uh, before, there's this lag period between what we see and what happens two weeks from now. So uh, I, I continue to believe, since we have not reached the peak of this yet, nor have we seen the spread from the large epicenters like New York and Washington happen with their full force to other areas. Um, I think we are in for this over months, not weeks. Wow. We're recording this interview on March 25th, and the first question that we have is more a comment from a YouTube viewer who said, speaking of spread, you and Dr. Shives are too close. And Dr. <laughs> Shives has this tape it measure. Said, why are you not practicing social distancing when recording? And you know what? That is a good question, and we are you remiss know? for not practicing what we've Bra- been preaching. Bra- bravo. I mean, I've even watched you guys, and it didn't enter my mind because I'm right. so used to that setting. And Tracy sometimes forgets that I'm at high risk for this COVID-19. So uh, she stays over there. I stay over here. Good question. Thanks for uh, alerting us to that. All right. 55,000 cases so far. 26,000 of those in New York. 809 deaths. About what you expected? In the U.S., yes. That's a case fatality rate of about 1.3 or so percent. Very different than the world, which is at 4.5 percent. Very different than Italy which is uh, closer to 8%. So in that respect, we're doing well. The one thing that I do worry about is the idea that, okay, people have kind of been hunkered down for maybe a week or two, and they're already starting to say, well, maybe this will just be another week. I cannot see. I cannot see that that will be the case. We have not hit the peak yet. We have we have longer to go with this. And isn't the case that once we hit that peak, then 14 days we have to wait or 12 days, we need to have some sort of timer in our head? Yeah, you're, you're thinking in the right direction, but it, it really works this way. It's 14 to 28 days after we see a sharp downturn or even elimination of cases, if you want to be really safe before you relax those restrictions. All right, another question from a listener. What items in my home or office should be disinfected? 
Yeah, I think, um, well, well, maybe start this way. Um, you have a much uh, easier job in your home, assuming nobody's infected, with cleaning your hands when you come into your house. So first thing you do is clean your hands. After that, it is, uh, of course, your telephone. We touch our cell phones uh, all day long, no matter where we are. We're probably contaminating them. The keyboard of your computer, anything that you touch regularly, the bathroom and sink faucet, doorknobs in and out of your home, those are the, those are the areas that are touched by everybody multiple times a day. Can you order takeout food while you're sheltering in place, Dr. Poland? Yes, um, and I actually think that takeout food and even ordering groceries for high-risk people is a smart idea. Um, does it completely eliminate the risk? Nothing can or will, but it diminishes the, the risk. And as we've talked about before, what you're really trying to do is put layers of protection around you, each one decreasing your risk so that in some your total risk is as low as you can feasibly drive it. Our next question comes from someone who's thinking about summertime and wants to know if they should cancel their summertime travel plans. Yeah, I think depending on, on what they're thinking of. Uh, would I fly to Italy uh, this summer? No. Uh, or China? No. Uh, if they're talking about, well, we're going to get in the car and drive eight hours to see, you know, uh, my healthy adult child and grandchild, I think it's too early to know, but I wouldn't necessarily put those plans, uh, cancel those plans. I'd just put them on hold and watch and wait. Just pencil them in for now. <laughs> Next question, how long can the virus live on different surfaces and also in the air? This is a really good question. And, and, and let me explain the uh, roughly 23 studies that have been done. The latest one that came out in the New England Journal a week or so ago, and people have to be careful to interpret this, they put together idealized conditions for a virus, conditions which generally don't exist. And they kept a chamber and aerosolized the virus. Again, that does not reflect reality. In and what do you mean when you say aerosolized? Because another, tell us the difference word, between aerosolization and droplets. Okay, good. Really key principle. Aerosolized virus is um, small amounts of virus without the large mucus um, drops that are, are often carrying it. That can float and stay in the air for very long periods of time. The, the common method that is uh, causing transmitted virus in the population is large respiratory droplets. These, these are the coughs and the sneezes where you have virus carried on mucus droplet. They do not float in the air and they drop quickly down to the ground. That's why the social distancing, ideally of 6 to 10 feet, works best. Now, this, this idea of, of persistence on surfaces, what the other 22 studies have shown and the recent look at the Diamond Princess cruise ship is they found virus 17 days after that cruise ship had been emptied. We don't know if it was viable virus, meaning virus that could still infect you. But this is consistent with what a variety of studies have shown. 
is that if you have somebody coughing, sneezing, symptomatic um, COVID-19, you can, you can uh, detect this on the surfaces of that room. Now, it's exquisitely sensitive to the proper disinfecting fluids that you would use to clean a room. So it's a, it's a key strategy in dealing with this. Because it is thought that this virus started in animals and then crossed over to humans, our next question wants to know, can our pets get the virus and then transmit it to other people? Dogs uh, in particular do have coronaviruses, but not the type that infect humans, at least not commonly. Dogs actually have a coronavirus vaccine uh, that, that is made for them. In terms of this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. That virus is not carried by our pets. We are not infecting our pets, and our pets are not infecting us. However, out of an abundance of caution, (laughs) CDC did release a statement saying that if you have uh, symptomatic COVID-19, you don't have to quarantine yourself from your pet, but don't let the pet lick your face, don't share your food, uh, etc. Um, not because there's data suggesting risk, but out of caution. All right. Lassie sounds pretty safe. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. <laughs> Next question. Can I get infected through a cut or open wound? There, there is no evidence of this being transmitted in that way, nor are you going to in some way absorb the virus through your skin. This is why hand washing and sanitizing works so well. We're back with more in just a moment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Joining us by phone is Mayo Clinic infectious disease and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. We're getting used to sheltering at home. What is next? What's the most likely scenario that is a- lies ahead of us? I, I think what we're going to see is more institution of what we've seen around the world where countries and cities didn't take this as seriously as they should, had a major eruption in the number of cases, and then, just to use a term, locked it down, and in two weeks started to see diminution in cases. A good example in the American context is New Rochelle, New York, where they actually made it a containment area, about one mile square is my understanding. And they've seen a precipitous fall in cases. Took, guess what, two weeks for that to happen. But it works. I think we're going to start to see that in other areas of the U.S. as this moves away from the two coasts and more and more into the center of the U.S. So here's a listener who is obviously listening closely. (laughs) She says, two weeks ago, you advised us to use contextually appropriate levels of protection. Explain again what that means, and does it still apply? It not only applies, but it is a dynamic or moving target based on the context. So first, a simple analogy, and then we'll apply it. If you live in a safe area of the country, when I go to bed at night, I lock the front and back door, layer one. I close my first floor windows, layer two, and I flip an outside light on, layer three. That's all I need. If I live in a, in a more difficult area of the nation, I might add layer four, an alarm system. 
layer five, window bars, maybe layer six, the panic button. You, you get the idea. So what does that mean for us in the, in the U.S.? Well, again, are you in a high-risk or a low-risk situation? And, and that can change over time. Low-risk situation, telework if you can, social distancing, being sure your hands are clean. Layers two and three, nobody comes in your home without hand sanitizing. Layer four, nobody comes into your home, uh, period, and, unless it's absolutely necessary. And, and you just keep layering things on like that based on your particular context, based on the uh, transmission dynamics in your area, recognizing they lag by two weeks or so. So you're sticking with that as your motto? You don't have a new one? Well, the only new one I have is more cultural, and that is, and, and we're beginning to see this, you know, St. Paul Ramsey Hospital up in the Twin Cities, um, among their greatest number of ER visits is not COVID-19, it's mental health issues. And my motto is we really have to turn from a me culture to a we culture. If it's every man for himself, we will do poorly, as history shows in pandemics. All right. It's not me. It's we. All right. <laughs> yeah. Next question. Do surgical masks help or not? Not only do surgical masks help, but a mask of almost anything helps. You can have an effective mask out of a folded over bandana or handkerchief. The way it helps is it decreases the risk that you'll breathe in these respiratory droplets that somebody else may have coughed or sneezed, and now you're breathing. And it is a reminder to not put your fingers in your eyes, nose, or mouth. So from that perspective, it is protective. Now, it can't do anything against aerosolized virus, but that's probably not the primary mode of transmission here. They didn't want people to go out and buy all the N95 and surgical masks because they were needed for healthcare workers. I think that was the motivation behind that, not hmm. science saying that okay. it doesn't help. Would right. you like to comment on the cure being worse than the disease thinking? <laughs> yeah, I, I think this really gets to cultural and personal values. What price a life? How much economic disruption for how long? What does it mean, particularly for the most vulnerable members of our society, who are often living paycheck to paycheck. This is where government comes in. And government is to do for the people what they cannot do for themselves. How, how far do you go with it and how do you balance it? I think it is a phased approach. You wait till the curve bends. You wait till you start seeing a, a, a great diminution in cases. And then you wait two weeks more. All right. Isn't it okay for people with no symptoms or who have tested negative to go back to work? Difficult question. The no symptoms, you actually don't have any information. Uh, it is apparent that asymptomatic transmission, that is, you have no symptoms but are still carrying the virus and can transmit it to somebody else, does occur. The other thing that's really important is that we, we began to have very rapid tests to tell us whether somebody is immune, even if it's in the short term, so that they can go back to work, in, in particularly in essential jobs. They can be frontline healthcare workers and responders. If I have a sick family member, can I go to work or should I stay home? You should 
stay home. If you're not an essential uh, worker, then, then you need to be at home. All right. Uh, next question. The U.S. and South Korea apparently had their first detected case of COVID-19 on the same day. But it appears they have fl- they have flattened the curve and started the 14-day timer. What can we learn from what and how they have handled the outbreak? Yeah. Well, the key thing in this, and I, I know people bring up, well, you know, SARS in, in 2002 wasn't like this. That was different. There was not asymptomatic transmission. What drives this is that we do have people transmitting the disease who don't know they have it. And so when, if you really, you have two choices in stopping this pandemic, and there are only two absent antivirals and vaccines. You either get everybody infected, in which case you will have millions in the hospital and lose tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people to the disease, or you shut things down now. Both are disruptive. Both have pros or cons. Both are value judgments. But if the goal is stop widespread transmission, everything that isn't essential or that is not a part of national security, uh, supply chain, hospital workers, etc., you telework. I have one last question. It's about ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. What do we know about ibuprofen's safety? So we know a lot about ibuprofen's safety, though not in the context of this particular infection. Ibuprofen, regardless of uh, a context, is a drug that can cause water and salt retention. It can elevate blood pressure and it can cause bleeding as well as kidney uh, dysfunction. Now you take a drug like that into somebody with a viral infection. Does it help or harm? I think despite the warnings of WHO and the government of France, I think most of us as scientists recognize there really is not any solid scientific data saying that that represents a unique risk in COVID-19. Now, having said that, the only reason to take a drug like that is for fever reduction, muscle aches and pain, use acetaminophen, far safer. All right. Well, Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert, vaccine expert, thanks so much again for answering all of our listeners' questions on the COVID-19 outbreak. Hopefully, we'll reach the apex of number of cases pretty soon and number of deaths, and we'll start to go down on the other side of the curve. We all hope so, yes. Thank you, Dr. Poland. Find the most up-to-date information anytime by downloading the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast from your favorite podcast provider. You'll also find more coverage at newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. We're back with more in just a moment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, there are some obvious downsides to social distancing and isolation caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. But one of the pluses is some extra space, some extra time in your schedule. So what if <laughs> That's you look, one way to look at it. <laughs> so what if you look at the cancellations as an opportunity? Time you could use to make yourself a little healthier. 
we're uh, talking about how to make lemonade out of lemons. And here is one of my favorite lemonade <laughs> salespeople uh, to talk us through a few ideas for improving your health while waiting for the all clear is Mayo Clinic family physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Thanks for having me. I am looking forward to selling some lemonade. We can do it. Lemonade out of lemons. I think when uh, people who are listening heard what Dr. Tom Shives said is, let's look at this on the positive side. I think yeah. we're all trying to do that. I think that's about all we can do right now because we're hearing so many scary and unusual and once in a lifetime sorts of things from the media and from our friends and from our doctors and other healthcare providers. And about all we can do is just try to stay positive. Yeah, strange times, don't you think? I mean, you and I, uh, and I've lived a lot longer than either one of you, <laughs> have never seen anything like this. No, I haven't. I haven't. And there have been a lot of conversations at my house and friends' houses about this is something our kids are going to remember. I think this is a life-shaping event. You were saying that as we were getting started, you think this is going to change your the trajectory of your career. Explain. Yeah, I really do. You know, I, being, I'm, I work in an outpatient practice. I see mostly people who are well as opposed to sick people in the hospital, but we're trying to keep them that way. And right now we're being asked to really try not to see them in the office. And so we're doing more video visits, more phone visits. And so the way that we're delivering care is changing much more rapidly than we ever could have anticipated simply by necessity. And I think that will transform how I do my work moving forward throughout the rest of my career. Because it's working pretty well, right? It is, it is functioning and we are rising to the challenge. We have an awesome team of people. Uh, you can't boil all of your patients down into one anecdote, but overall, how are your patients responding to being under this stress? Well, you know, I think people are are scared and they are um, not quite sure what to do with all that nervous energy. And so they're reaching out to us and we're trying to help them as best we can. Um, but one of the things that I would kind of advocate for is that there's a lot of really great information on the CDC webpage or the Mayo Clinic webpage, and that's a great source of first a first step rather than reaching out to your healthcare provider. If you have some basic questions, those might be some really key, frequently asked questions that you can have on your own and be able to figure out. Let's talk about just the, we're, we're going to go through a list yeah. of a few things you can do to make yourself healthier. But before we do that, let's talk about the mental benefit of being proactive rather than reactive. Yeah, I think as that's a mom, huge. Right, as, as a physician. A, I sure know that when I take care of myself, I'm better able to take care of others. And so it's the proverbial oxygen mask on the airplane. Get that ox- oxygen mask on yourself before you're taking care of everybody else. So for me, what does that mean? That means that I need to keep exercising. I need to make sure that I'm eating food that doesn't make me feel terrible, even though I've grabbed a couple bags of Cheetos here <laughs> as we've been going through this. But Keep those routines that are part of your day-to-day life so you can have as much normalcy as possible during this very abnormal time. Now, you've got some extra time to do some other yeah. things. And and tell us, uh, make a list Sure. from, uh, from uh, most important to maybe not so, as important, but I bet sleep is on, sleep on is top huge. of the list. Sleep is huge. And so I think the, the three things that I would really stress as being opportunities for something new during the social distancing time is getting some exercise, perhaps in a way that you haven't before. Social distancing doesn't mean you have to be inside. Here in Minnesota, the weather's starting to get beautiful again, and you can be outside six feet of distance between you and your friend. (laughs) Go for a walk, get some fresh air, and that is both uplifting to the body as well as the spirit. So exercise is really key. Focusing on 
positive sleep. And I've also just started meditating. And I know that's a huge recommendation for people. And people kind of think, well, that's bonkers. Am Mm -hmm. I going to do that? It actually helps and kind of help with the good sleep and help you turn off that whirling mind. And there are a lot of actually really wonderful app-based programs that are available on the internet or in the app store and your whatever your smartphone is. YouTube. YouTube. Mm -hmm. And and one great thing about all this social distancing is so many of these things that were fee-for-service before are currently free. When I saw the sleep was on your list, which of course makes sense, I thought so many people have heard the suggestion that you go to sleep at the same time every night, don't set an alarm, wake up when you wake up, that'll help you figure out how much sleep you as an individual need. I'm like, hey, we finally got a great opportunity to figure out. Yeah, how much this is going on in my house. You know, like we're watching how how we like to be set up, and my husband, who has a job where he can work from home, is now working from home, and so he has now taken to waking up about seven forty five. Never did it before. No, he didn't have. He wasn't able to do that. But it's kind of the rhythm is nice. So this is an opportunity to sleep in those patterns that you prefer, recognizing that that may not be what we can do in the long run, but hey, for now. At least you'll know how much sleep you need. (laughs) So I think there's some pretty good evidence also that exercise can improve your immune system. And how could that be more important than now? Absolutely. And then uh, let me ask you for someone who has never meditated, but you're sort of convincing me that maybe it's a good idea. How do you start? Where uh, where do you go? Well, so I started with an app-based thing. And I thought... So you went meditation beginner or... Yeah, I just started with a beginner one. And I kind of realized that as I was trying to fall to sleep, fall asleep, it was kind of difficult for me to shut down. And so one of the apps that I use is just kind of says, relax your body, relax your hands, relax your face. And I can feel myself sitting there and like my cheeks actually kind of fall down. And I think, well, what the heck? Apparently this works. (laughs) And I'm able to shut down, get ready for sleep. And I actually think the quality of my sleep is improving. You really don't have to clear your mind of everything. No. But what you have to do, at least what is key for me, um, so that's Mm -hmm. what works for you. What works for me is to go from seeing my thoughts swirling around in my head to picture myself sitting on a river and watching my thoughts go down the river. Yeah. Because then that disassociates you from your thoughts. Because right now I am swirling like a cyclone crazy. Yeah, in I, my thoughts. I saw a patient yesterday who's had a bunch of life stressors in addition to this pandemic right now. I said, hey, why don't you try meditating? You know, this might be something really great. And this is a person who really enjoys fishing. And he said, well, I actually meditate when I'm fishing. And I believe that, you know, that's a repetitive thing. That's a really kind of zen experience where you're out in nature enjoying what's around you. And so if there's something like that in your life that isn't necessarily having an app guide you through a meditation, go for it. And those things are not excluded to you at this moment, even though we're asking you to social isolate. So I really don't want you fishing with a buddy, <laughs> but if you can go out somewhere and do something like fishing or running or walking, that something that helps you feel like yourself, please do those things. You can go sit and stare at the water and yeah, imagine absolutely. yourself fishing. Absolutely. <laughs> What about from a dietary standpoint? Something kind of cool about social distancing is we are being forced to eat at home and cook. (laughs) And we certainly know that home cooked, home prepared meals are tend to be more healthy than restaurant meals or um, processed things. And so that's a great opportunity. My kids right now are doing homeschool and they I made a cake the other day for homeschool math. My nine-year-old mixed up the recipe, followed it, had to do fractions. And 
So we had cake. We've been having a little bit of cake every night. So those things are great. Um, but I do think this opportunity at home is a, might be a, a nice chance to think about your diet a little bit more. Say, I think I might be ready to make some changes. Some of these changes are being imposed upon me. So what can I do within my grocery budget that might be help, help me make some changes? Eat more plants, eat less meat. If you're somebody who likes beans, maybe switch from canned beans to... Whole beans, dried beans. And you could do dried beans. It's dirt cheap. <laughs> if you've got a pressure cooker or a slow cooker, it's pretty easy to ramp it up. And for about two bucks, and you've got a lot of beans. <laughs> By the week. time you get the two packages of toilet paper in your cart, there's not much room left. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, at least a little bit of lemonade in these difficult times. And with that extra time on your hands, there are some things you can do to improve your health. Now is as good as time as any. And Meditate. Meditate. And I think if I could have any parting words, they would be, please do stay home. We are absolutely serious that in this crisis, that is the safest thing that you can do for yourself and for your family is to stay away from them. There are many wonderful video programs where you can chat with your family and still see them and be social, but don't touch. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic family physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Thank you. Thank you. Before we take a break, a word from Dr. Joseph Servin, a Mayo Clinic neurologist. Dr. Servin has some important thoughts for patients with neurologic conditions like epilepsy, seizures, and migraine headaches. I think the biggest thing with uh, with regards to epilepsy or any chronic neurologic condition that requires medications uh, to be managed is, number one, have your medications on you. This may be the time to do the three-month uh prescription refill plan uh, so that you have plenty of medication regardless and you don't have to call anyone for any urgent uh, refills of those prescriptions. The issue about migraines is that you also have to be really mindful about getting sleep, avoiding uh, certain foods, knowing your triggers, knowing yourself. And that is something that you just have to be very careful with in terms of just navigating that so that you don't run into any funny situations uh, during this time. Dr. Servin also points out the anxiety being caused by the COVID-19 pandemic may increase the chance for seizure or headache, so it's vital that you find ways to eliminate stress. He offers these suggestions. So I think the easiest ways to consider de-stress are the following. The first thing is, although we all need to be kept apprised of what's going on in the world, you don't need to watch second-to-second, minute-to-minute news coverage of the different issues of how the virus is impacting us. Give yourself some breaks. Uh, maybe check in once in the morning and once before you go to bed so you know what the big headlines are to make sure there's nothing else that's changing. But otherwise, give yourself a break from some of the news of the day so that that doesn't start an echo chamber where it's just increasing the sense of stress. The second thing is remember to think of yourself. Uh, make sure you eat. Make sure you stay hydrated. Uh, all those good things that help to prevent uh, infections uh, to begin with, the things that you do on a normal day. So take care of yourself that way. The third thing is exercise. Now, exercise under this whole world of, of physical and uh, social distancing may sound complicated, but it is super doable. How about a walk outside? Uh, keep your distance and get some of that sunshine and just bright sky because that can sometimes just give you a sense of, of relief. And I think that is a, a huge element. 
focus on the positive. Uh, believe it or not, despite all of the headlines and all the scariness, there are a lot of positives. China is reporting almost no cases coming out of that country, and that was the epicenter. That is a good sign that this can be weathered uh, over many months, but it can be weathered, and that is something optimistic to look forward to. And the fifth one, I'd say, give a moment to reflect. Uh, meditation, take a deep breath. If you're spiritual, pray. And if that brings peace, so be it. But those, I think, would be the most helpful tips for you. I'd also make sure that if you're feeling symptoms of depression down, that just seems you just can't get out of it. It's not just a passing element. Let your physician, your provider know. We wanted to be able to help you. There's plenty of hotlines. There's plenty of uh, outlets out there to help. And I think that's the most important thing I would tell any one of you out there if you're having or struggling with problems like that to let us know because we can do something about it even now. Our thanks to neurologist Dr. Joseph Servin for his thoughts. We'd also like to remind you our Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts offer extended conversations about stress relief, among other discussions on COVID-19. You can access our Q&A series wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Mayo Clinic Radio continues after a short break. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Joining us in studio is the director of the Bone Marrow Transplant Program at Mayo Clinic, hematologist, that's blood specialist, Dr. William Hogan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hogan. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us how the coronavirus is affecting bone marrow transplant donors. So the coronavirus has had a dramatic impact on bone marrow transplant in the United States and across the world. It's a huge issue right now. Uh, there is a number of issues. One is that uh, as an infection itself for our recipients, uh, we're very concerned about it. The patients that are most vulnerable to coronavirus, as you know, are those that are older and those patients that have had underlying comorbidities and are immunosuppressed. And most of our patients fit into that category. So these are the recipients, and you're worried about them getting the virus. Exactly. And the, the treatment options right now are uh, limited. Uh, we are trying to see if there are potential strategies that might be helpful in uh, dealing with the virus in patients that do get it. But our main strategy right now is to try and really minimize the exposure of our patients to this virus because we are very concerned that any patient that gets it will be at a high risk of having a poor outcome because of the limitations that we have for treatment at the moment. Are you delaying people's surgeries or procedures? So that's one of the strategies that might be possible. So again, it depends on, you know, what's the needs of the patient. So for some patients, it's very reasonable to delay. If the patient is otherwise clinically stable and it's appropriate to delay, then that makes sense. And that oftentimes might be a good strategy. Second option is uh, trying, to, if it's not possible to delay and we think the patient really does need a transplant right now, then trying to minimize their exposure. There's a lot of public health uh, measures that are being put in place. We're developing better and more wide availability of testing for the virus. And then we're hoping in the next number of months uh, to start looking at clinical trials of treatments for the coronavirus, but that's in its infancy right now as we're trying to ramp up and figure out what the best way to approach these is. Now, I su 
suspect that there are patients uh, that you've matched and they're ready to go. And do you uh, test the donor uh, just before you use the cells? That's an excellent question, and you're right. We ha- it's a very stressful time for a lot of patients and donors. Right now, the National Mara Donor Program does not suggest doing PCR testing. That's the virus test that uh, can be done on donors. Uh, the evidence hasn't shown that that's needed. That may evolve, and this is a very rapidly evolving situation, and so that might change in a week or two or somewhere down the road when there's more evidence to support it. What we are doing, though, is one of the problems that we face is that many of our donors uh, are international donors in areas where there's high risk, so uh, European countries and beyond. And so that becomes a challenge because sometimes people can be asymptomatic and have the virus, and then after a period of a week or two, then become symptomatic. And the concern, one of the concerns is that maybe some of those donors might be collected during the asymptomatic period of time and then subsequently uh, have the virus in their product and then ultimately not become symptomatic until afterwards when we've used it. So the ways we're trying to deal with this is to try and collect the cells in advance, freeze them, uh, wait for a a short period of time, and then use the cells once we know that the donor is healthy and that it's not the delivery of the product to our center has not been impacted by flight delays or disruption in travel or all the chaos that's happening with regard to the virus right now in airports. Because um, the, the most of us don't deal on a daily basis with people being immunocompromised, um, when it comes to dealing with COVID-19, you're probably ahead of the game with a lot of the rest of the public or even medicine, because that's what you deal with all of the time. What is going around in your mind as you think about your patients um, and brainstorming different ways to help medicine at this time? So I think we are totally in agreement with the public health measures that have been put in place. So we think that the best way to try and help minimize the impact of this is to really try and contain it initially until we get a better uh, uh, control of the initial spread of the virus. Uh, Many healthy people that are young probably won't have devastating disease, but there is a huge population of people that live with us in our own houses that have uh, underlying medical comorbidities that are going to be extremely vulnerable to this. So I think we are completely on board with public health measures to try and minimize the transmission. We're obviously trying to rapidly identify those that are affected by using uh, testing, and then we're trying to identify new ways of treating the virus once it becomes available. Ultimately, what we'd like to see is some sort of a vaccine that's effective, but that's obviously some ways down the road yet, and so we're waiting on that. I presume you have not had a patient who's sitting there waiting for a bone marrow transplant who has actually gotten the virus? As of this point, no. If you did, what could you do? So I think... It depends on the situation. So if it's if the person is otherwise relatively healthy, it's possible that they may be able to get through the virus infection, recover, and then proceed to their transplant later. Um, I think we would uh, generally not want to proceed with a transplant in that situation until the person had really recovered fully from the virus. Um, how well they can handle the virus depends on what their underlying problem and the reason they need a transplant is, and we'd have to take that in a one-by-one basis. This just came into our email box, and I'm just going to throw it at you. Okay, sure. <laughs> Can people who think they have already had the virus and are done with it be tested for immunity? Is that something that we can find out through testing? So that's an excellent question, and we're not quite there yet. Uh, right now, the testing that's being done is PCR testing, which tests for the actual virus itself, uh, and it's part of the virus. Um, checking for immunity to that is not yet available, and uh, we're not quite sure when that might come, but that's something that's not immediately available. Excellent question. 
Dr. William Hogan is director of the Mayo Clinic Bone Marrow Transplant Program. Dr. Hogan, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.